0: Welcome to the penultimate episode of Season 1 of Take a Closer Book. I'm your host, Guinevere Lee. In the last episode, we finished the final chapter of The Princess Bride, and here's a little bit of listener feedback. Juju said... I am currently 50 pages to the end, and I found it pretty bad. I didn't realize how sexist it is. The only move that Buttercup does on her own to contribute to the crazy effort of Wesley for the entire book is shouting, I am the queen! It is not even an accurate sentence. The huge difference between the roles of men and women in the book is sad to me. I am a decently strong woman who fought some battles in her life, and reading about Buttercup irritates me. The male characters are all cool and they all grow a lot. She basically just waits around for the entire book. She is entitled, spoiled, and indolent. I still remember it with a smile and a lot of tenderness watching the movie as a little kid, but I completely changed my mind on the story, unfortunately. I don't disagree with Juju in general. There definitely are some sexist moments, which I talk a little about in the analysis section. However, I don't think it's as bad as she says, and I actually think Buttercup is an interesting and competent character in the book. The problem is not that Buttercup sucks, the problem is that there are no other lead female characters. Hannah Stolit said, "The book is a satire of a satire. Goldman makes fun of a fake book by S. Morganstern, which in itself is written as a satire of the typical princess story. To me, it's like the inverse of the typical heroic story. Usually, the main characters are fleshed out and meet one-dimensional villains. But in the Princess Bride, the main characters are relatively one-dimensional. Buttercup is super ditzy and annoying. Wesley is just Mr. Perfect." and it's the side characters who are fleshed out and a major part of the rest of the story is goldman's narration he sometimes lays it on a bit thick but overall he does a really good job making it seem like he's taking a relatively lame hero story and turning it into something sparkling and magical kind of rescuing it from itself Hannah has a few good points. Wesley in the book is not a very compelling character when you get past his physical feats, which is something very obvious in Buttercup's baby. And finally, Mike Vago said, I agree that it manages to skewer fantasy tropes while also telling a great fantasy story, but what makes it truly great has nothing to do with genre. Goldman just puts so goddamn much into the story. Inigo isn't just a great swordsman. He is a great swordsman who is an obstacle for our hero. He's got a tragic, sympathetic history that is itself a great story. Wesley isn't just kidnapped by the dread pirate Roberts. He takes over from Roberts in a clever twist that is itself a great story. The whole book is a story that's full of other great stories, and there's so much specificity to all of it. Why is the guy in the pit of despair an albino? Why is the bishop such a hilariously bad public speaker? It's because Goldman thought through every single detail. In the story, and packed it with so much incident and color as he possibly could. There are so many inventive details. The cliffs of insanity, the fire swamps, the six-fingered man, the machine, and then, of course, the dialogue. Has there ever been a more quotable story? A few years ago, I was on a road trip with my kids, but not my wife, so it was left to me to entertain them, and I downloaded an audiobook, and it wouldn't play. So we had a seven-hour drive ahead of with nothing to do, so I recounted the entire story of The Princess Bride, and I found I could recite virtually the whole movie from memory. It's like that story about the college professor filling a jar with golf balls and asking if it was full, and then when the class said yes, filling the space in between with ball bearings, and then filling the space in between those with sand, and then pouring a beer into the sand. There's always room for more, and Goldman didn't stop with his story until he had filled it to the top four times over. Mike, I think, sums up pretty well why The Princess Bride is such a compelling and memorable story. Thank you for that. Now, in this episode, we're going to take a look at the sort of sequel, Buttercup's Baby. This is something that was written for the 25th anniversary edition and included in all subsequent editions. It's only the first chapter, so don't expect any satisfying conclusion, but this chapter does tie up some loose ends from The Princess Bride. So it's definitely worth a read. So, let's take a closer look at the one and only abridged chapter of Buttercup's Baby, Fezzik Dies. It's the final summary. Before we get to the proper story, we start with an explanation. Or, in other words, the fourth introduction in this edition of the novel. But since the introductions are just as much a part of the story as the story itself... They're always fun to read. Goldman begins by explaining that the reason he's only abridged one chapter and not the entire book stems back to that reunion scene mentioned back in chapter 5, the announcement. Basically, him writing his own version of the scene created this massive two-decade-long legal battle. For the full story, listen to episode 5, where I read the letter people who requested the reunion scene received. Now, 25 years later, the Morganstern estate wants to drop the lawsuits, all 13 of them, and in exchange, Goldman won't make any trouble for them. See, in the interim, the film adaptation of The Princess Bride has been released, and everyone now associates Goldman with the novel, which is a very big problem for the estate, because they don't want William Goldman to abridge the sequel, they want Stephen King. Unfortunately, Goldman has already set his heart on abridging the sequel. His son, Jason, is now grown up with a son of his own, Willie jason has read willie the princess bride and the young boy is enamoured by the story he desperately wants his grandfather to do the abridgment of the sequel and read that to him so the next time goldman runs into king he explains the situation however king who is a Florinese descendant himself, also really wants to do the abridgment. In King's opinion, Goldman didn't do the best job possible abridging the first book and takes umbrage with how Goldman did not research. Because King and Goldman are friends, though, King agrees that as long as Goldman does some proper research, he can do the abridgment. This is what prompts the trips to Florin described in the 30th anniversary introduction. Since they still need to clear all of this with the Morgenstern estate, though, Goldman is only allowed to bridge chapter 1. Although it's only one chapter, it is split up, similarly to how chapter 5 has two mini-chapters in it. It begins with part 1, Fezzik. The sequel does not begin where the Princess Bride ends. It begins with Fezzik climbing up a cliff, chasing a mysterious man who has no skin. He's chasing the man because the man has kidnapped Waverly, Buttercup and Wesley's daughter. When Fezzik realizes using only his arms allows him to climb faster, he manages to take the man by surprise. The man makes all kinds of threats about how he can breathe fire and change shape, None of this bothers Fezick, who demands the man give back Waverly. Instead, the man throws Waverly off the side of the cliff. As she goes over, she sees Fezick and calls out to him by the nickname she's given him, Shade. Fezick doesn't hesitate and jumps after her. Goldman interrupts what he thinks is an exciting action sequence to say that he doesn't actually like this opening. He thinks it's a poor way to kill off what is his favorite character. He says he has a lot of problems with this chapter, including the next part, which even his publisher, Peter Gethers, wanted him to delete. The part in question is titled Inigo. It begins with Inigo in a town called Despair. He has a flashback to the first time he came here, when he was 20 years old. He's just returned from training in Iceland, and is now in Italy training under the fencer Piccoli. Piccoli only agrees to train Inigo because he recognizes the six-fingered sword. He has heard the story of the murdered swordsmith and assumes this must be Domingo's son. Piccoli's training is the opposite of everything Inigo has been doing so far. He stops his rigorous exercises of stretching and squeezing rocks and surviving on only four hours of sleep a night. Piccoli, for him to sleep all the time. Piccoli wants him to focus his mind, and to do that he must completely ignore his body. He moves into Piccoli's stone house, which is on the lands belonging to Count Cardinale, a mysterious figure who apparently runs half the country. During one of his naps in Piccoli's stone house, a young woman walks in. Inigo takes one look at her and tells her, I cannot marry you. She's surprised, but slightly charmed by this. They begin to speak, and he learns that her name is Julietta, and she's lived in the Count's castle her entire life. Despite instantly being taken with her, Inigo has already pledged his life to seeking revenge, and knows he can't afford to fall in love, which is why he says he cannot marry her. He tells her of his romantic dreams, where he says he's seen her before. Julieta thinks his romantic soliloquies are nothing more than Pickup lines. She tells him to go try that act on some of the village girls and walks away. The next day, Julieta returns to mock Inigo because, in the dream he had, they were sleeping in haylofts and living like peasants, and she figures he ought to be able to dream of something better than that. She leaves him again, but again comes back the next day and asks him about the six fingered sword. Inigo takes the opportunity to show off some of his moves and also tells her about the murder of his father and his lifelong search for revenge. Still, she says he has no chance with her, and leaves him alone. That night, there's a ball in the castle. Drawn by the music, Inigo sees Julietta, who beckons him over. She says she can sneak him into the ball, so he can see how beautiful it is. The ball is fantastic, but suddenly Julietta sees the count. They hide behind the door, but Inigo is spotted. The count accuses him of being a thief. Inigo says a servant brought him here, but refuses to give up her name, even willing to sustain torture on her behalf. The Count says he knows her name, because she is his daughter. He storms off, and Juliet returns to his side, happily proclaiming that her father likes him. As Inigo and Juliet dance the night away, she confesses that she is the Count's daughter, and only dresses as a servant to see what people are really like. She says she has been making up her mind about him, but now has made up her mind and they kiss. Goldman comes back to tell us that the scene just ends there. He calls this part the unexplained Inigo fragment, because it doesn't make sense in the narrative, and nothing happens. This is why his editor wanted him to cut it out. But Goldman defends his decision to include it, saying he feels it humanizes Inigo for the first time, making him more than just a one-note Spanish revenge machine. Stephen King gets Goldman in touch with his professor cousin. His cousin also tells Goldman that this part is pivotal because it's in despair when Inigo discovers Humperdinck's plan to kidnap Wesley and Buttercup's first child. According to King's cousin, this is obvious thanks to Morganstern's amazing symbolism. Goldman doesn't see it himself, but he takes the professor's word for it. We reach part three, Buttercup and Wesley. Finally, we are at the end of the Princess Bride, our four heroes racing off on the four whites to escape. The starting paragraphs are taken verbatim from The Princess Bride. Goldman interrupts to point out how clever Morgan Stern's playing with time is. From the first page, we know that Waverly is going to be kidnapped, and then in the second part, Inigo learns of the kidnapping plans according to King's cousin anyway. And now we go back to before they've even finished escaping Humperdinck's clutches. As they escape from Humperdinck, they come to a fork in the road. Just then, Inigo's wound opens and Fezzik pulls him onto his horse to help him, getting distracted and going left instead of right. Then Fezzik hears Buttercup calling for help because Wesley is unconscious and her horse has lost a shoe. Fezzik goes to pull them onto his horse as well, but then the weight is too much and the horse stops. Also, the road has come to an end anyway. Trapped, his friends dying, Fezzik begins to make rhymes to calm himself down then Fezick is shot by one of prince humperdinck's razor-sharp metal-tipped arrows we cut to humperdinck's perspective and how easy it was to corner them once they took the left road as his arrow hits Fezzick, humperdinck yells, and the brute squad charge buttercup watches in horror knowing she's about to die and begins to think of the trees and how they remind her of her youth. Goldman calls a timeout, frustrated with Morgenstern for spending the next 65 pages talking about trees. But apparently Morgenstern has become an environmentalist after all the trees on his property were cut down. So he forces his readers to read this essay he's written about trees. Otherwise, they won't find out that 1. Fezzik survived the arrow thanks to the Holocaust cloak bunched up under his shirt. 2. The pirate from Wesley's ship Revenge were hiding in the trees and jumped down to defeat the brute squad, though Humperdinck and Yellen escape, and three, Wesley's first mate, Pierre manages to get them all back to the ship alive and with that we time back in safely on the ship they raise anchor and make their escape a blood clogger comes in to treat inigo while pierre works on wesley once pierre learns that wesley was only mostly dead and received a pill from miracle max with the all-important chocolate coating provided by Valerie, he says there might be a chance to save him. Goldman then cuts out six pages of Pierre trying different methods to save Wesley. None of them work until finally Fezzik holds Wesley over the side of the ship until he starts choking and sputtering. This seems to wake Wesley up. Pierre tells them that they can't stay on the ship. As long as Humperdink is after them, it won't be safe for anyone. Wesley agrees, and they decide to make their way to one tree Island. Wesley has himself, Inigo, and Buttercup chained to Fezzik. They get into a rowboat and leave the pirate ship revenge. Wesley explains that One Tree Island is a perfect place to hide because it's impossible to reach. It's at the bottom of a whirlpool, and everyone who's tried to sail there has died. Buttercup wonders how they're meant to survive then. Wesley says they'll make it with Fezzik. All Fezzik has to do is swim through the whirlpool, dragging them behind. Unfortunately, Fezzik is scared to death of getting one water up his nose. They build up Fezzik's confidence, psyching him up, but nothing works. As the boat is destroyed and they're sucked into the whirlpool, Buttercup grabs Fezzik's nose. Without having to worry about water up his nose, Fezzik is able to struggle through the whirlpool and make it to the island. Ten pages about the island vegetation are cut, along with Buttercup making Fezzik a nose clip so he can swim out to the whirlpool whenever he wants, hunting for sharks and other big fish for their meals. We cut to Buttercup and Wesley cozying up together. Buttercup, still ignorant of what goes on between a man and a woman, tries to act like she knows what she's doing and tells Wesley they ought to take things further than kissing. Wesley feigns ignorance, not wanting to let on that he may have been less than faithful as a sailor. We skip ahead nine months. Buttercup about to give birth. The four of them have made a fine life for themselves on the island, but none of them know anything about childbirth. After days of labor go by and the baby doesn't come, they know there's a problem. Just when it seems like Buttercup is about to die, suddenly Fezzik is possessed by some force. In a voice that is not his own, he starts commanding Inigo and Wesley, asking for soap and a sword. They're both confused but have no choice but to accept the help, Fezzik then begins to perform a caesarean section on Buttercup. Part 4 is called Fezzik Falling. Fezzik and Waverly are falling. Fezzik grabs her, and in his arms Waverly smiles feeling safe and believing this is just another one of their games. We learn that from the beginning Fezzik and Waverly are incredibly close and that Fezzik can tell when she needs help or what she's thinking. He sets her on his head when he swims out in the whirlpool and they spin around laughing their heads off. He sits by her and she uses him as shade, hence the nickname. As they fall, Fezzik realizes the only thing he can do is hold Waverly, using his body to break her fall. For the first time, he he's glad he was born a giant because it means he can save Waverly's life. The chapter ends and we get a final note from Goldman. Neither he nor his grandson believe Morgan Stern was going to kill Fezzik here. And of course, there are a lot of unanswered questions. What possessed Fezzik? Who is the man with no skin? How do they get off the island? But those questions will have to be answered by your imagination. Or we could try to answer them in analysis and opinion. The existence of a sequel to The Princess Bride was a throwaway joke mentioned in the letter sent out in lieu of the reunion scene. Again, you can hear this letter if you listen to episode 5 of this podcast. It starts at the 25-minute mark. I'm not sure if it was the popularity of the film and the growing interest in the novel, or if Goldman himself was starting to have second thoughts about how the original novel ended, but either way, he decided to continue the story. He's basically giving the characters and his imaginary son, Jason, the happy ending they deserved. Well... (laughs) As happy as Goldman can make it while still being a glorious literary troll, we no longer have to sit in contemplation over what happened to the four escaping from the castle that night. Now we have confirmation that they did all escape, and honestly, it's a fun little chapter. But of course, Goldman couldn't help solving that mystery just to open up a dozen more. This chapter definitely has a different feel. While the Princess Bride kept the action scenes and cut out lengthy exposition, Buttercup's baby seems to be the opposite. Opposite, It reads more like a rough draft of a novel, with a few key scenes written and just ideas about how to connect them all together, which in all likelihood is what this is. Probably it's just a collection of scenes and ideas Goldman had about expanding the world of The Princess Bride. I am even almost certain that the unexplained Inigo fragment is actually something he had written for the original novel. I think he cut it out because Inigo's backstory was already long enough, but liked it enough to include it in Buttercup's baby. Of course, there's no way to prove that. But since it feels out of place, it's something his editor wanted to cut, and Goldman keeps drawing attention to how it doesn't fit with the rest of the text, I think it's likely a leftover scene. It makes sense for him to include it here, even if it adds nothing to the story, because it adds to Inigo's character. He does have dreams and desires, and it just shows how much he had to give up in order to focus on getting revenge. This chapter also has way more of a fantastic, feeling. The Prince's Bride was right on the edge of being a fantasy, but all the wild places and things still felt like they could be found in reality. Here we have a skinless man, islands in whirlpools, and giant birds. Well, the giant bird is mentioned in the introduction to the 30th anniversary edition. It's where Goldman explains how he got a hold of Morgenstern's journal, and how Fezzik was most likely saved by a giant bird. The last thing I want to talk about is the one thing that kind of irked me in this chapter. It's the scene where Buttercup is pretending she knows how to have sex, and Wesley is pretending he doesn't. Goldman never explicitly says that Wesley sleeps around when he was at sea, but it seems pretty obvious that's what he's getting at, which is just utterly insane. The entire point of Wesley and Buttercup is that they're bound by true love. It's insulting to think that he would sleep around. Though, honestly, Wesley does have a couple other misogynistic flip-ups in the princess bride that i didn't even touch on he literally calls buttercup his property at one point and knowing goldman these flaws were intentional sure they have true love but buttercup is still vain ditz and wesley is kind of an unfaithful dick Thanks so much to everyone who listened to the first season of Take a Closer Book. It was fun being able to go so much deeper into a story that I love, and it was great being able to have discussions with you all every week. For the next episode, we're going to be having a table discussion. It will be just like listening to a real book club meeting. <laughs> Until then, please feel free to drop me a line on Twitter at Guinevere Lee. That's at G-U-E-N-E-V-E-R-E-L-E-E. And now, please stay tuned for a special episode announcement. I am so proud to announce that the sequel to my first novel, Orope the White Snake, is now available for pre-order. Continue your journey through the Bronze Age-inspired world I introduced in Orope. Your support not only helps the book reach a wider audience, but it also means a lot to me personally. I've dreamed since I was 10 of becoming a published author, and thanks to all of you, that dream has come true. To help market the book, I am doing all pre-orders through Indiegogo, there are a lot of great discounts and merchandise that won't be available once Picati the Azure Fish hits the store. Check it out before the campaign ends on Saturday, 6 April 2019. What follows is the audio from the Indiegogo campaign video. If you like what you hear, then please look up Picati the Azure Fish. That's Picati P-E-K-A-R-I, the Azure Fish on Indiegogo. I-N-D-I-E-G-O-G-O. Hi, my name is Guinevere Lee, author of Orope the White Snake and the soon-to-be-published sequel Picati, the Azure Fish. I've always been fascinated by ancient history and in university I had the opportunity to study classics like The Odyssey and The Aenid. As a fantasy writer I was really inspired to write my own series based on real mythology and cultures, but set in a completely unique world that I created. After years of hard work, my dreams finally came true last year, when Orope the White Snake was published by Morgan James Fiction. After a crazy year of conventions and book signings, we are proud to announce that we are ready to publish the sequel, Pecari the Azure Fish. But, Morgan James is a small publishing company, and I need your help to buy author copies that I will be using at events, giveaways, and conventions. Any small contribution will be a huge help, and I can't thank you enough. But what is The Whisperers of the Gods? Let me tell you the story so far. Orope, the White Snake, and Picari, the Azure Fish, are the first two novels in the Whispers of the Gods series. Orope begins in the Sea of Sand, inhabited by the Gogepe, the Whispers of the Gods. They have seen a vision. The gods are furious that the old ways have been forgotten and will destroy the world in a flood unless the Gogepe can convince the great kingdoms to change their ways. Three are chosen, Tersh, Shadi, and the young Kereth. Each one is tasked with reaching one of the empires and convincing their leaders to heed their word and appease the gods. Shadi travels to the dense jungles. The people there have a good life, with plentiful food and an impressive society where pyramids are a common sight among the trees. But soon Shadi learns that they have a dark side, performing human sacrifices. Shadi travels north with two princes, hoping to reach their leader in the faraway capital, the Red Pyramid. But a terrible accident at the end of Orope leaves his future uncertain. Turish and Kerith travel together to Mahat, the most powerful of all the lands, its empire flourishing on the banks of the Hiperu River. They meet the merchant Samaki and his first mate Chuhark, who are struggling to sell their cargo. They agree to take the two Gogepe north to the capital, Napata, leaving Kareth to complete his mission in Napata, the others continue north to the mountain kingdom of Matawe, and Kareth comes to a rude awakening, that without Tersh's guidance or Samaki's help, it will be far harder than he ever thought to complete his mission. Samaki and Chuhark return south, leaving Tersh in a city that fears and despises her people. Her life in danger, Tersh must fight to survive. The novel focuses on the difficulty of the journey, not only traversing massive distances, but dealing with prejudices as well as learning new languages and trying to overcome culture shock. In Peccati the azure Fish, the story continues in full force. We see the introduction of new characters and locations, like Kassara, the princess of the mountain, and Tuthalia, a questionable character who leads Tersh through the mountains. K'set, a mysterious warrior from deep in the jungle, and we finally reach the legendary Red Pyramid. And now I'd like to read you an excerpt from Picadi the Fish. O oh, glorious princess, "'Excuse the interruption of your lowly servant.' Cassara opened her eyes to see a middle-aged man "'bowing low to the ground, Parathos. "'He was not one of the Matauega. "'He came from the Cephian Islands, somewhere in the Middle Sea. "'He had arrived in Mataue a few years ago. "'He said he came for the bronze produced here, "'for the metal was cheap in the mountains, "'and he used it to make sculptures.' He was taller than most men in Mataway, thinner as well, his brow more pronounced and his eyes wide and bright. His long limbs were wrapped in the silks he had brought with him, though age had frayed the once fine stitch, and he often wore a muddy wool cloak over them anyway to stave off the cold. His hair was golden, with the slightest hint of red, though it was speckled by grey hairs. She had always thought he was quite ugly. I hear you have finished, she tried to smile again, but the air was still too cold for smiles. Yes, my princess, the queen will be most pleased when she sees our invention. He motioned towards the main entrance. Pray I will be pleased to see it, she ordered, standing up. She turned to a guard. Have my cloak fetched for me. Once she had the long wool cloaked, Lined with soft mountain fur, wrapped around her frail body, she followed Parathos out of the Queen's Hall. Parathos prattled on about his workmanship, and she nodded politely, but listened not to a single word, he said. She exited onto the stone plaza, steep stone steps descending before her. From the top she could see the wide, low city, made from the dark mountain stones. The city roads have been built much the same as the halls and the castle, with the intention of confusing and misleading any invading army. The kings who built Nesete only had one thought in mind, creating an impenetrable city. It would have been a commendable feat, if not for the fact that being in the highest valley in the mountains had kept any army from marching on their walls, though the usurpers were certainly poised to do so. "'the usurpers.' "'She wrung her hands together "'as she walked down the steps with Parathos. "'This invention was for them. "'The Cephian was getting more excited the closer they got. "'She could see it now. "'It was just to the right of the main plaza. "'They had built a raised dais for it, "'in the middle of which was a large fire pit, "'and straddling the pit with a large bronze ram, "'its beautiful curved horns encircling its head And glinting in the midday sun, its face looked focused, almost angry. She chose a ram to honor the first Kisara, who had ridden to the Hall of a Thousand Gods on the back of a white ram. When she took that cursed city again, she would march the usurpers to her bronze ram. It was a giant of a ram. She wanted to make sure both the usurpers would fit inside together. But Perithos had gone even above her expectations. As she opened the door on its side, she saw that four or five men could fit easily inside. A few other people were gathered around, admiring it with awe on their faces. As you requested, the screams of whoever you place inside will travel through the pipes and emerge from the nostrils to sound like a great bellowing beast. Parathos smiled proudly. Are you certain? She gave him a sideways glance. "'Of course, I tested it extensively. "'He looked offended. "'He always looked offended when he wasn't being praised. "'She hated pompous men. "'Show me.' "'He laughed, sticking his head inside, "'and gave a half-hearted scream. "'No,' her voice cracked like a thunderclap, "'get in and do it properly.' "'His laughter suddenly became very nervous. "'He looked around at the people who watched with curious eyes.' Though his eyes fell mostly on the guards coming up behind Kassara, he couldn't refuse her. Of course, he cleared his throat, putting his arms on either side of the entrance, one foot inside and pulling himself in. He sat as close to the open door without falling back out. Again he tried screaming, and she started to hear weak bellowing coming from the ram's nostrils, "'No, no,' she sighed loudly. "'It's too quiet.' "'Well,' Parathos seemed to pale as he sat in the belly of the beast, "'the door must be closed for the full effect.' "'Ah,' she smiled, then looked to a guard on her right. "'Close the door.' The guard moved faster than Parathos could react. In a moment the door closed and Perithos's nervous face disappeared. A strong bar was placed over the entrance.' "'Perathos, tell me, have you ever heard a dying man scream?' Kisara asked loudly. Through the door, a weak reply came. "'No, princess. Is it something you cannot replicate on command?' "'You,' she pointed to the same guard, light the pyre. "'Princess?' Parathos called, perhaps not having heard her. The light of red fire began to dance underneath the ram, and the guards stepped back. Everyone began to back away as the fire grew. Worry and excitement etched on their faces. Banging started coming from inside the ram. Princess! Princess! Perithos called. The fire grew, going so high that it began to blacken the ram halfway up its hinds. Parathos began to scream, and the ram began to bellow. She frowned. It was still too quiet. "'Stoke the fire,' she said quickly. And then it happened, the moment when Parathos realized that she would not open the door, and his death rattle came screaming out of the ram, converted and changed into a monstrous bellow. She looked around at the faces watching, their eyes wide with terror, and felt the smile creep across her face. She realized this was the first time she had felt warm in years.' And if you want to finish the rest, you'll have to buy a copy of Picari, the Azure Fish. You don't question why you're running through a forest of bamboo. You don't give yourself time to think. You run, you scream, you cry. You run and run and run, and you hope the man chasing you with a bow and arrow doesn't kill you. and the Samurai is a tale of a modern girl in ancient Japan. Only available on chanillo.com. That's c h a n n i l l o.com. com. Lita, a young woman who moved to Japan to escape her abusive family, is slowly adjusting to her new life. She's learning Japanese, making friends, and enjoying the summer festivals. On the day of the famous Tanabata Festival, she finds a small shrine. But when she steps out of the shrine she steps into Edo-era Japan. Trapped 400 years in Japan's past, what follows is half fantasy, half historical fiction. Is her coming here an accident? Or does it have something to do with the sudden appearance of European ships off the coast? Lita must discover how she ended up in this situation and how she can get back home, or if she even wants to go back. Lita and the Samurai updates bi-weekly on Mondays. You can read the first chapter for free on chanillo.com. Once again, that's C-H-A-N-N-I-L-L music provided by bensound.com